can go ahead and grab your Bibles and open them up to the book of Ecclesiastes. Uh, you're turning to Ecclesiastes chapter 5, by the way, and uh, we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 7 together this morning. And uh, again, if you don't know where Ecclesiastes is, if you're newer here, maybe you're not familiar with the Bible, just go ahead and take that Bible and open up right to the middle. You'll probably end up in Psalms or Proverbs, and then right after Proverbs is the book of Ecclesiastes. And uh, we've been going through the book of Ecclesiastes and just seeing how God is working to expose so much in our lives. It's interesting sometimes how things get exposed. I worked um, a lot of jobs. One of the jobs I had in high school was I worked at a department store. I worked at the Bay in the Pickering Town Center, and I worked at the point of sales. And I uh, dealt with people's money and purchases. And I'll never forget, uh, you know, during the training, they taught us to be aware of people who would use counterfeit a currency to pay for their things. And I, I remember just as a, as a, a, a young uh, youth in high school kind of being excited about the prospect of coming across somebody trying to use fake money. And um, I had my eyes open, you know, we, we, uh, we, we had security, we could call, and uh, I was just kind of waiting. I remember the first time I came across uh, some, somebody paying with some, uh, some fake money. And um, I'll never forget it. They, they warned us, you know, that when people try to do this, oftentimes they're really shrewd and careful with how they do it. So they'll often come up and they'll, you know, try and purchase like a, 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 um, a, something that's worth a lot of money and they'll slip, you know, one fake bill in, in the midst of a stack of real ones so that you miss it. You know, you're just moving quickly. You don't see it. But my first experience was that somebody walked up to the cash and wanted to buy a $1 chocolate bar with a $100 bill. And instantly, you know, I'm like, okay, something's up here. And uh, I, I made the purchase. And then, and then what happened was the person said, because you're supposed to actually let it go through. You take the currency, and then you call afterwards to report it. And, and, and what I did was I took it in. I took it in. And as soon as I cashed them out, the person said, actually, I'm just going to grab one more chocolate bar and took out another $100 bill. And I'm like, this is awesome. <laughs> And, and I remember afterwards, um, I, I called the security, they came and they nabbed them before they got the door and they recovered uh, over $1,000 of fake bills on the individual. Now, I share that to tell you that there's, there's something we hate about something that's fake. None of us likes a con man or woman. It was a woman in this case, believe it or not. Usually men are doing stupid things like that. But nobody likes a fake or a fraud more than God. Nobody despises, excuse me, a fake or a fraud more than God. And yet, what I want you to see this morning is that religion is filled with professional con men and con women. People who are faking it, pretending to be something that they're not. And in chapter 5, while the preacher of Ecclesiastes, we believe who is Solomon, has been walking us through a lot of different things that we pursue, a lot of things we pursue in terms of our, our worship, what we love, what we long for, what we adore, what we sacrifice for, the things we believe will give us meaning and purpose, he now shifts from observation, observing those things and what we tend to go towards, and he moves now to instruction, and the first thing that he deals with is religion. Now, religion itself is a neutral term. Religion can be defined something like this, somebody's belief and way of life in light of that belief. But the word religion has 
oftentimes negative cultural connotations attached to it. We use it in a derogatory way, and lots of people do this. It's often viewed negatively to describe hypocrisy, external rituals, or traditionalism, or judgmental attitudes. And it's clear that the preacher is showing us from this text this morning that there is a God, but here he asks this profound and meaningful question, how should we approach him? How can we draw near to God in a way that is pleasing to him instead of some false or fake way of trying to approach God? Now, for most people, the answer to this question is, well, you just do it however you want. You approach God in the manner in which you see fit, what you believe is best. Now, that tends to work because most people have created a God in their own image anyways. And so they have devised a manner of approaching that God that seems right to them in their own eyes. But the question is, is this true? Can we approach God as, as, as human beings, and let me narrow this in, can we approach God as Christians any way we see fit? Is it possible that we are approaching God in ways that are unacceptable, in ways that he deems as being fake or fraudulent? Sin has made it likely that you and I are approaching God in unhealthy ways. In fact, sin itself has fractured the relationship between God and man so much so that our ability to approach God is actually greatly hindered and prevented, and it is not incumbent upon us to determine how then we deal with our sins so that we might approach God. Instead, we approach Him the way he calls us to, the way he requires. And you say, how do I know this? Well, it's the way he has determined, the way he has revealed in his word. In the Old Testament, God set up a way for his people to approach him, to come into his presence, to worship him in the temple. This was the primary place of worship in the Jewish life, and it was designed that way by God, a place of his dwelling, a place where his glory literally dwelt And through a sacrificial system, God had enabled his people to deal with their sin in a temporary way that would remind them of some very important truths of who God is and how they are to approach him based on who they are. God had designed a way for them to experience communion and intimacy and fellowship with him, a way that he required people to come to him. And here, these seven verses, verses one through five, are a picture of of worship. They're a picture of how we as sinful human beings can approach a holy God, bringing a sacrifice into the place of worship. But all too often, the external activity for the people of God in the Old Testament and for many of us today was devoid of internal meaning, and it's important that we inspect our hearts. This passage this morning is a warning against fake religion. It's a warning against hypocrisy, and it's a warning, let's be very specific this morning, against fake Christianity. Let's read it together. The preacher says these words in verse 1. He says, guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near, to listen, is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they are doing evil. Be not rash with your mouth and let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. 
For a dream comes with much business, busyness, and a fool's voice with many words. When you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Let your mouth lead you in, not lead you into sin, and do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity, but God is the one you must fear. The question for us is how are we going to approach God? How should we approach God? And what Ecclesiastes lays out here is the manner in which, the way in which we are to approach God. And the first thing we see, if we're going to avoid fake Christianity, is this. We've got to avoid the hypocrisy of an external show. God is not pleased with an external demonstration of righteousness alone. And here the preacher identifies a few ways in which we're typically manifesting that, especially as we come into the presence of God, in the gathering of God's people. Remember the context here, it's when you enter into um, the, the presence of God, when you draw near to the house of God, that's the sense here. This is when you're gathering corporately with the people of God. The, the transition here from Old Testament to New Testament is when you're gathering as the church. And there's three specific ways that he actually kind of draws this out of us to show us potentially where you and I are going wrong in our own lives, where we are seeing hypocrisy, where we're seeing an external show alone. And here's what he says first. He says, watch the careless conduct of your life. Watch out and be aware and avoid careless conduct. Notice he says, guard your steps. The idea of steps here. Is, is metaphorical, and it describes the manner and the way of your life, how you're living, how you're walking. Walk is the metaphor that's used so often throughout the scriptures, especially in the New Testament, but all throughout the old of our, our life lived with God in relationship, in obedience to his commands. That's the sense here. And he forces us first to ask the question, are we guarding our steps? Are we watching carefully the way we walk? Or are we being careless and thoughtless in the way we are approaching this life and especially the Christian life? It's describing here the person who offers some kind of external religious observance. They're going into the temple. They're going to meet with the people of God. They're going through the motions. But you see, going through those motions, they are disconnected in their everyday life. Their everyday life, the way in which they live, is not being viewed as a form of worship unto God. Only the external show matters to this individual. This is the person who does not care to live their life according to the clear commands of God revealed in Scripture, but feels instead they can simply go through the religious motions every once in a while and be fine with God. Proverbs 7.14, I want you to see this verse. It's on the screen behind me. Notice this kind of display here. Listen to this. It says, I had to offer sacrifices, and today I have paid my vows. A language reminiscent of this very verse. Now, I just want you to consider this for a second. Do you understand the context of this verse? Let me ask you this. Do you know who's saying these words? Because they sound great, don't they? Don't these words sound really commendable? 
If you know anything about the book of Proverbs, specifically Proverbs 7, it is the context of a father warning his son against sexual sin. And you want to know who says these words in that context? The adulteress who is trying to woo the man's son into sexual immorality. The woman who says, my husband is away on business. I've just finished going through the religious motions. I've gone through the religious rituals and practices. I've done my part to demonstrate my commitment to God. Now, how about we just throw that away and let's walk straight into sin together? That's the person saying this. You say, well, how does that exactly relate to me? Listen, listen, this is relating to every one of us because in in some way or another, you and I can fall into this trap, can we not, of being Sunday-only Christians, can't we? Let's just be honest for a second. How many of us have, you know, gone through the religious motions, we've come to church on Sunday, we've stood there and sang songs, maybe even thrown in a hallelujah and amen every once in a while, yet, listen, all the week long, we have been walking far from God and walking in deliberate and willful sin with no intention of aligning our lives up with what God's word actually says. How many of us have stood here in the context of worship and demonstrated an external show of being committed to God, listen, walking out these doors with no intention of following Jesus in very clear areas of your life? Guilty, been there, done that, and the temptation of our sinful flesh is to be pulled back into that place time and time again. You see, this is the, the outward display of love that is empty of any true value and meaning towards God. This is, listen, this is the husband who showers his wife with flowers and chocolates twice a year, but meanwhile spends his days gazing at other women, looking at pornography, or walking into adultery. The displays of love are rendered null and void by the regular activity and pattern of living. Are they not? Why would we believe it's any different with God? So what what does God really think of this? Well, look at what he says here. He calls this, listen, the sacrifice of fools. You're offering some kind of a sacrifice, but it is not a sacrifice of the righteous or the wise. It is the sacrifice of the fool. And look how he qualifies this. For they do not know what they, that they are doing evil. Listen, did say that this is, just, is this speaking of just pure ignorance? No, that's not the sense of what he's communicating here. So what is it talking about? Listen, this is speaking of people who have become so used to playing games with God that they no longer expect religion to be anything else. It's become the norm. It's become the way in which they believe they should approach it. And, and part of this is driven by, well, this is what happens with you and I too. Well, well I, mean, I mean, there hasn't been any real consequences to this, right? Like, God hasn't struck me with a lightning bolt yet. I, I guess I'll just keep going through these motions and doing what I've always done. Clearly, God can't be that displeased with it. There's no perception of consequences so often, and so we just keep doing what we've always done. God hasn't judged me. Maybe I'll be fine. Maybe it's not that big of a deal. But can I remind you of what 1 Samuel 15, 22 says? On the screen behind me again. 
Samuel said, has the Lord a great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifice? As in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen that, than that of fat rams. You know, yeah, and guys, the, the implication is so clear, isn't it? Like God, God doesn't care about the external rituals. They're not what matters most to God, especially if your heart is so far from him. You see, and the call here is to guard your steps. So let me just ask you really quickly this morning, how did you walk in here this morning? How did you step into this place, into the presence of God? I know many of you uh, rushed in here, barely breathing, trying to get the kids in the you know, ministry programs, like trying to scramble kids, get them breakfast, get them fed, get in the, you know, in the car, you know, forgetting something at home, driving back. And you've come in here and you feel really rushed. And listen, part of the practice of the Christian life is to make sure that we're guarding our steps the moments that we walk into this place, the moments we wake up on a Sunday morning are precious moments. And we need to guard our steps because the enemy is on the attack. But can I just ask you maybe um, a broader picture, a broader question related to this picture? Um, How are you doing in your life? How are you walking your life relationally? Are you coming in here worshiping God? Listen, husbands, but you're treating your wives like garbage all week long. Are you coming in here to sing praises to God and to demonstrate to God and others how godly you are, how righteous you are, how committed you are to him, but all week long, you're short with your wife, you're not sacrificing your life for her, you're not washing her with the water of the word, you're not loving your kids, you're impatient. Wives, let's just talk to you. How many have walked in this place, listen, just fully engrossed in your own life, not truly caring about your kids and their well-being, angry, frustrated, resentful towards your husband who maybe isn't loving you properly? How are you doing relationally this morning with others in the body of Christ? Have you walked into this place, listen, with fractured relationships? Knowing that you've sinned against others or believing that somebody is holding an offense against you, they believe that you have offended them? Have you walked in here relationally unified or relationally divided? How have you walked into this place spiritually this morning? I know we're all singing. I know we're lifting our voices and some of us even raising our hands to God. How are you doing spiritually? How was your week spiritually this week? Were you in the word? Were you pursuing godliness? Were you dealing with sin through repentance and faith? Were you trusting in the grace of God or in your own powers and abilities and wisdom? How are you living your life this week? You see, that's what God is drilling down to. Is there a careless conduct in your life that you're not considering as an aspect of your worship? Secondly, he goes into careless communication. Verse 2, he says this, Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. Again, context here is really important. The the most specific application is in the the context of the the corporate gathering, the people of God. And the, the communication that's being described here, if we're going to be as specific as we can, is speaking mainly of prayer. How are we communicating with God. Is it careless or is it careful? This is speaking mainly of spiritual words that are empty and devoid of thought and meaning. Are you accustomed to saying the right things 
but having your heart very distant from the words that you're saying. We all do this, and the Christian life is notorious for this, right? We all know what it's like to get down the Christian lingo, right? Some of you are perfected Christianese like crazy. And you got, you got the words down, you got the sayings down, you know, like, how are you doing today? Oh, brother, blessed, you know. Hallelujah, God is good. Yeah, amen, right? Like, we've got the language down. There's so much more we could throw in there. And, and listen, there's nothing inherently wrong with those words. Listen, there's something inherently wrong when we disconnect our hearts from saying those words. When we just throw them out there. Trivially. And you see, he's blasting here this idea that simply saying the proper or right things is what matters to God. It doesn't. You see, we tend to think that when we speak to God through prayer, that we're speaking to God through a, a microphone that he hears on a set of heavenly speakers, kind of blasting through the heavenly realms. But in reality, when we speak to God, God is listening through a stethoscope. He's listening for the spiritual heartbeat behind the words. He's trying to see if your heart is connected to the things that you're saying. And he describes here less of a prayer, really, when you think, like, what's he talking about? It's less of a prayer and it's more of a monologue, right? You know what it's like. You know what? You've, you've all heard other people, right, just simply talk to God, right, as if they're, they're, they're simply, simply there not to ask God for anything, not to call upon God, but simply to inform God of a bunch of things that they believe he somehow doesn't already know. And they just wax eloquently in their prayers, and they say a bunch of really big words and uh, things that are, are, they think, impressive. And here he's calling this out. Here's what he says in Matthew chapter 6, verse 7. He says, And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do. This is Jesus' words. For they think that they will be heard for their many words. Right? How many, how many of us are guilty of doing just the very same thing? This kind of fake Christianity. Big words, proper phrases, as if somehow that's going to, going to be impressive to God or invoke his hearing and response. You see, God isn't impressed by our mindless and mechanical words. He's just not. Really, this is speaking of pretentious prayers. Pretentious, trying to impress with spiritual language, which ultimately makes, listen, a pretentious prayer is ultimately a prayerless prayer. It has no value. What's your communication look like with God? My fear is that many of us pray, you know, these kind of pretentious prayers or just merely giving the words to God. You know, I like to refer to these as dinner time prayers. You know, you know what dinner time prayers are, right? Like every one of us knows the dinner time experience, especially if you young kids. Okay, somebody pray. All right, God is good. God is great. Amen. Thank you, Lord. You know, like you're just you're going through the motions so that you can check the box. Look, we prayed for the food. Now it's good. Now maybe it will taste fine today. We teach our kids just to say the right things. By the way, dinner time prayers, that, that is the time to let your words be few. I agree with this here. Like, Everybody agree? I'm like, listen, this is for free. Nobody likes long prayers at dinner, okay? Let your words be few, right? Thank the Lord for his goodness and grace and provision. Don't wax eloquently about everything going on in your life. Food's getting cold. People are hungry. Let your words be few, okay? (laughs) 
We need to make sure we're careful in how we're approaching God. Can I give you one more way in which we need to, I'm going to give you two more ways. How about that? And we need to let our words be few. We need to be careful in what we say and how we say it. Uh, I think one of the ways, listen, we, it's not only just in our communication with God. This is in the communication with others in the Christian life. Where we give careless communication, where we give um, advice or counsel to others that sounds good and sounds right, but is really ungodly and unhelpful. Listen, you need to avoid like the plague, this goes back to last week's sermon, listen, the kind of people and relationships that tell you what you simply want to hear. You know, the profuse of the kisses of an enemy, the, the people who just want to tell you the good things, encourage you, encourage, encourage, but never actually tell you the hard things. They want to give you counsel that relates to you. You know, you know you're, 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 you're wrestling with somebody relationally and, and somebody treated you poorly and their counsel to you or their responses, how dare they treat you like that? You shouldn't let them talk to you like that. You need to put them in their place. Listen, that's not a good and godly friend. And we need to be done with running to people who give us dumb counsel ungodly, unbiblical counsel that leads us away from God, we need to run to people who are going to give us godly counsel. If your friends aren't telling you what the word of God says, listen, they're not true godly friends. If they're not pointing you back to God's words, what he wants for you, then be careful. Here's one more way, listen, we need to be careful, and this relates more to prayer. What about in singing? Perhaps in the Christian life, the greatest and most tragic way we are careless in our communication is with our singing. And you guys know what it's like, and we've all been there where we stand here, we sing these songs, but again, our words, our hearts, excuse me, are so far from the words that we're singing. We're thinking about everything and anything but the God that we're singing to. We're looking around, staring at others, evaluating their worship. Every time we open our mouth, our heart is on display. The question being asked of us here is, what is being revealed the third thing he draws out here is careless commitment. Notice what he says in verses 4 through 6. He says, when you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It's better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Let your mouth lead you, uh, let, excuse me, not your mouth lead you into sin and do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? He goes after the kind of commitments we make predominantly to God. Where we vow to God to do something. We make an oath with God. And this was so serious in the ancient world. We have multiple cases of this in scriptures. In the scriptures, it was not required, but it was often something that people did as a sign of their commitment to God. You know, you think of Hannah, who, who gives uh, her son Samuel to the Lord, devotes him to the Lord, and pays that vow. But here he's speaking of making empty promises to God. And vows are, are, are incredibly serious. In fact, listen to what Psalm 50 verse 14 says. It says, offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and perform your vows to the Most High. Do what you say you're going to do to God. Don't treat it trivially. Avoid hypocrisy when it comes to making commitments to God. And again, listen to this. This is an external attempt somehow to earn God's approval, but it results in God's judgment. You see God's anger here, and he destroys the works of your hands. So instead of God being pleased like you think he will with the vow and commitment you're making, when you, when you fail to fulfill it, instead you risk losing everything. This kind of vow, really at its heart, is devoid of meaning and right motivation. And what the preacher is, is, 
exhorting us to do is to be slow in making promises of God. Don't be rash with your words. Be careful what you say. You say, well, I don't really have a problem with this. I don't make any vows to God. That's how I get around it. Really? You ever done something like this? God, uh, if you just forgive me this once, I swear I will never do it again. You ever said that? Guess what you just did? You made a vow to God. God, oh, please, God, if you just, if you just take away this temptation, uh, temptation now, I will never, I will never pursue that. I'll never get myself into this predicament again. I promise, God, I promise. God, God, if you just give me this job, I promise to increase my giving from 10% to 11%. <laughs> right? God, I, I promise if you allow me to succeed in this area of my life and, and I gain this platform, I'll use it for you and for your glory. I promise, God, if you give it, how many times have I made stupid promises like that? And the call here, listen, don't take this lightly. This, this is not, like some of us were like, well, that's trivial. It really, it was really God. Does God really care? Yes, God cares. God cares about how you're committing to him, what you're vowing to him, what you're saying to him, and what you're not doing to fulfill those things. The point here in this passage, you will be held accountable, right? For every rash word you speak, you will be held accountable. And be careful when you say it to God. You notice again, look at the context here, and do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Listen, this is the person who makes excuses for everything, right? Who's the messenger? More than likely, listen, this happens. Again, the context is in corporate worship where somebody has made it clear, I have vowed something to the Lord. Now listen, this probably, probably most specifically relates to some kind of financial offering. It's probably what's happening here. They've declared that they're going to sell everything and give it to the Lord. They declare that, listen, they're going to take their proceeds from this venture and they're going to commit it to the work of the Lord. You know, think of like facility fund, okay? I made a vow. I wrote it down. I said I'm going to do it. And then when the messenger comes, that's like the person who knows of the vow, who's been told about the vow, because this was done publicly. You have to think about this, right? We're going to get to this in a minute. Why publicly? Just wait. But the point is, so the messenger comes knocking and says, hey, uh, I, I have written down here that you said you were going to pay this amount. Uh, you set it on this date. Uh, you signed here. And um, I'm just here to collect on what you said you were going to give. And the person says, oh, that. Yeah, I said, you know, I was in the heat of the moment. Like, I was just really worshiping the Lord. And I just said some really stupid stuff because the spirit was moving. <laughs> some of you are like, just process that for a minute. Oh, you know what? I know I vowed, but I, and a different expense came up. And, you know, I really needed, you know, I needed this, and I'm sorry, I couldn't do what I said I'm going to do. You know, you know how life goes, right? You know, you know, right, right, God? When called upon to fulfill the commitment, what we often come up with is excuses. And listen, we're all susceptible to this kind of external religiosity. All of this carelessness is, is inherent in our sinful, fallen condition. This is what sin does. It makes us all hypocrites, does it not? And the goal is to avoid it. And hypocrisy, listen, is one of the most devastating charges that is leveled against the church and against Christians. We've all, we've all heard it, right? Ah, Christians, I don't want to go to church. They're a bunch of hypocrites. Listen, sin makes hypocrisy, in some sense, inevitable for every one of us. But the true hypocrite is not the person who realizes they're, they're not living up to the mark. 
It's the person who pretends that, they're, that they are. The person who presents themselves like they've got it all together when in reality they don't. And they're kind of a, a self-righteous religious individual. These are the people that Jesus rebukes the most, by the way, in the New Testament. So the call here is to avoid the external show, and if you want to approach God properly and offer true worship, not only do you need to avoid that external um, show, that hypocrisy, secondly, you need to do this, abhor the insincerity of a distant heart. And we're kind of weaving this through here, and this is kind of all throughout, and we've already talked a little bit about this, but let's just drill down to the real issue. You see, it's not about the externals, it's about the internal primarily. Not that the external doesn't matter, it does. But it only matters if the heart is in the right place. If there's sincerity in the heart in doing the right things the right way. And these seven verses, in fact, are, have been said. One commenter said they're about someone who has forgotten who he is and where he is and who God is and where God is. And this relates directly to insincerity and, and distance. You see, when we forget who God is and we forget who we are, it inevitably, it breeds an insincere approach to God. You see, all hypocrisy is driven ultimately, fundamentally, by a wrong view of God. That's what's happening. It's a wrong view of God. N not that at some point you didn't have a right view of God, but somewhere along the way you have likely misunderstood or forgotten or distorted it. And a wrong view of God produces an insincere and distant heart. And some people, you see, we look at God, and our tendency is to see God as distant. You see, the text here says this. Um, it says that God is in heaven and we are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. You see, some of us, we have this view of God that, that creates this Incredible distance between us and God. Like God in, in other words, not that just God is physically different, but that God, distant, that God is never close to us. He's not around. He doesn't see. In other words, the distance that we believe exists between us and God creates in us a sense of a, a lack of accountability to God. That somehow we can get away with sin. That somehow we can sweep it under the rug. You know, God's going to wink at our sin, and it's not that big of a deal. He doesn't really care or doesn't see. Some of us view God instead as a dictator. You know, God is, is up in heaven, and we are down on earth, and we're just his little minions, and he's just up there screaming at us and, and requiring things of us. It's all la, 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 la. We don't understand any kind of grace. God is, is a dictator, and so we end up functioning with this kind of legalism in our lives. Everything we do is to try and prove ourselves to God, earn our relationship with God. And that creates an incredible amount of distance and insincerity because all we're doing then is going through the motions of somehow God is pleased if we just simply do all the right things, check all the right boxes. Some of us view God as a, a dispenser. In other words, God is, is kind of like a, a, a heavenly vending machine. And all we got to do is put in the right amount of money to get the right amount of things in return. And so we treat God in this kind of way, this heavenly Santa Claus, like, okay, God, um, I, I do enough for you and then you do some things for me, Right? I'm good enough, God. I, I, I go to church enough. I read the Bible enough. God. Therefore, God, you should be blessing me with these things that I really want in my life. We view God as a dispenser, and then we try to negotiate with God. Okay, God, how about if I just do this? Then will you do this? But you see, all of these things demonstrate a wrong view of God that often characterize even well-meaning Christians. And if that's true, if we have a wrong view of God, if we do not understand who he is, we will have a wrong view of ourselves. 
And then instead of God being at the heart of everything we do, we will become the heart of everything we do. And that will inevitably produce an insincerity in our worship of God. And a heart, rather listen, than drawing near to God, will be pushing away from God. I mean, take vows, again, for an example here. See, vows, like I said, are not commanded in the Bible. Vows, biblically speaking, are actually optional, but we see them time and time again. So, so here's a question. Why, why make vows if we're not intending to actually follow through them? Why do we do things like that? First of all, let me just qualify all these by saying sometimes I think we're really well-meaning. Our problem is what the text says, we're just rash. We're not slow and thoughtful. We're not processing properly. We're reacting out of emotion instead of out of truth and reality. So we over-promise and we under-deliver because we're way too quick. And it's a good kind of governor for us to be pulled back and to say, listen, before you make any kind of promise, you better be thoughtful and prayerful. You better be slow. You better seek wise counsel. I mean, you better do a whole lot of things so you don't get yourself into some kind of a hole. But listen, a lot of times we make these vows, and here's what I want to go after, with no intention of actually fulfilling them. That's what I want to talk about just for a moment. Why would we do that? Here's, here's kind of three quick reasons. First, we do it simply to impress others right? We're publicly stating to people of something of great significance, some, some spiritual zeal. We do this in lots of areas of our lives. We try to impress others. We try to one-up people. They tell a story, oh yeah, let me tell you something. We see this in our relationships, especially in our youthful relationships, right? Like nobody makes dumber promises than young people in love. Right? Oh, I promise. You know, I will never, never leave. I'm going to marry you. I will treat you. Like, I, I, I get, this makes me sick every time I hear this at weddings. Right? People are like, I am always going to love you the way you deserve to be loved, and I will never disrespect you until an hour from now. Right? Like, just so dumb. Like, we're so dumb when we're young and in love. Right? We say the dumbest things, and listen, we do it because we want to look good. We want other people to be impressed, like, oh, what a, what a godly husband he will be. But that actually, when we do things like that, especially with God, we're actually making evil and foolish statements. And what we're breeding within us is hypocrisy. When we try and present ourselves as spiritual we're not, when we try to flaunt that spirituality, God is unimpressed. In fact, if you remember Ananias and Sapphira in the book of Acts, the early church, you know the story, they walk into the early church at a time when worship was just being established in the new covenant era and the people of God, and they walk in, and this relates again to giving, and they have promised to give all the proceeds from the land that they sold. Instead, they hold some of it back from themselves, but they've made this promise publicly. People know, and they walk up to the front. This is the way we ought to do giving in the church. So everybody can see how holy we are and how much we're giving. And they laid it down to the apostles' feet. And the Spirit of God gives Peter insight into what's really going on. And he calls out the sin in Ananias. And Ananias determines to lie to the Holy Spirit. Why? Because he's still trying to impress everybody. He's still trying to make himself known. I'm No, I'm really God. What are you talking about, Peter? Of course I gave all the proceeds. And God kills him on the spot. His wife walks in three hours later. She's doing her hair. 
walks in, does this exact same thing. God kills her on the spot. Let me make another link to the Old Testament because this is really, really important. Nadab and Abihu. Pivotal time in the worship of the church when God was establishing temple worship. They offer strange fire to the Lord that was not required of them. You say, why would they do something like that? Because they believe they should do things their way. But listen, there's, there's kinda, it's insinuated in the text. They are trying to be impressive. They are trying to put themselves on display. And God kills them on the spot. Don't tell me the way we approach God in worship is insignificant. The lesson of the story is be careful that you are not consumed with looking good before others. You might end up dead. <laughs> the second reason we often do this is we try to manipulate God. Again, like if you do this, God, then I'll do this, right? If you do this, I'll do this. We put ultimatums on God. You know, we've all done it, by the way. We've all tried to use God in this way. I guarantee it. God, if you give me this job, God, if you give me this home, God, if you give me this vehicle, I'm going to use it for you, God. I'll use it for God. If you give me this increase, I'll use it for you. I promise, God. I swear it. I will. Can you just imagine? Like, just think of the audacity of those kind of statements for a moment. Just imagine God up in heaven listening to these kind of promises, right? Like, if, if you give me this, then I'll do this. Like, God in heaven seeing this. This is unbelievable, right? Or just imagine God sitting there like, oh, boy, that is such a good deal. I can't pass that up. Like, is, is, this, really, is this a one-time offer? Because I want to jump all over this. You drive a hard bargain, Ian Hales. Okay. Like, really? Like, God needs something from you? You, you ever think about that? Like, that's what we're God, God needs us to do anything? Listen to what Jesus says in Matthew 5, 33. He says, again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not even take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. You're really, you, like, you want to negotiate with God? You want to try and bargain with God? The problem is you have no bargaining chips, Right? He's like, you, whatever you swear by, I already own. I'm not accountable to you, God says. You're accountable to me. You can't swear by you. You don't determine if you make a hair white or black. Please, Lord, would you change that for me? <laughs> what can I do? You see, God's point, you owe me your existence. You're ultimately accountable to me. You're not in a position to make an offer that I cannot refuse. The third thing we do, and this is all really related, is we do this to advance ourselves. It's about us, really. At the end of the day, we want to advance ourselves. Listen, not just with others, but with God. Some of us are stuck in this trap where we believe if we do all these things, it's going to advance our standing with God. God's going to be more impressed with us. God's going to love us more. God's going to help us more. My good behavior earns me some kind of favor with God. Listen, at the heart of this is self-centered, sinful, hypocritical insincere Christianity. And what it creates between you and God is not fellowship and communion, but distance and brokenness. And rather than earning God's favor, verse 6 says, it actually makes God angry. He's not happy with it. He doesn't want it. And did you notice verses 3 and 7, by the way? 
They both kind of relate to each other. For a dream comes with much business and a fool's voice with many words. Verse 7, for when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity, but God is the one you must fear. See, what's all this talk about dreams? What does this have to do with anything? What's the point of these verses? Why does he just stick them in here? Listen, the person who works, the business side of things, we talked a lot about work, but the person who works too much and speaks too much have the same problem. That's what he's saying. Both are working hard to present themselves. They're self-absorbed. They're self-obsessed. They think very highly of themselves. They're thinking about the things of this world more than the things of God. And as a result, here's what happens. Listen, you begin to live in a fantasy world. You're living in a dream world. You might as well be in a dream. If that's the way you're living, you might as well be in a dream. Listen, because it is so far from reality. That's what life is like under the sun. It's a dream world. It's a fantasy world that you have concocted for yourself. And it is not the world that God says is real and true and to which you will be held accountable. You see, these kind of dream worlds and fantasy worlds are worlds that are created where we are at the center and not God. And that is not the real world. Again, the result is distance and insincerity. And this is the way that many of us choose to live. This is the way the people of God have often been tempted to live. Isaiah 29 verse 13 says this, Because this people draw near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, while their hearts are far from me. The appearance that you are engaged in religious activity, but a heart that has distanced itself from truly honoring and loving God. Many of us do this. Some of us are doing this right now in this room. You're playing a game. And God is not okay with it. It is not acceptable to God. And God wants you, listen, if that's you this morning, he wants you to feel the weight of conviction. Don't run from it. Don't try and convince yourself that it's not you if it is you. Let God put his finger on your heart. Let God give your life a squeeze this morning. Let God show you and open your eyes to what's really going on. You see, the truth is, is all of us wrestle to some degree with this, and every one of us needs our hearts adjusted. We need our hearts set right. We need to approach God the right way, and here's how that happens. Finally, he says this, acknowledge the disparity between you and God. Acknowledge that disparity between you and God. Here's what that looks like. You see, this is what we ultimately need. He keeps bringing us back to this idea that there is distance between us and God, but we need to qualify that. We need to understand it. And the distance between us and God is intended to tell us something about ourselves and something about our God, right? For God is in heaven and we are on earth is a powerful statement and we must first see this. We must hear it. We must believe it. And the point of that passage is simply this, that we and God are not on the same level. God is not like us. God is in heaven and you are on earth. Part of our greatest problem and the reason we drift into hypocrisy is because we have somehow convinced ourselves that God and us are on the same playing field. The statement here is not primarily geographical, it's theological, okay? The temple, listen, by the way, the temple coming into the presence of God in the Old Testament context was designed, the whole structure of the temple was designed to shock the worshiper out of this kind of false worship and false religion and false perspective. 
the, the, the temple, the, the majesty, the beauty of the temple was intended to shock people into this reality that God is so different than us. God is more majestic than us. The, the magnitude, you'd walk into the temple and the size of the temple, especially in the ancient world, would dwarf you. And that was a perpetual reminder that compared to God, you are so small. God intended the very temple itself to teach his people about who he is and who they are. You see, as you walked into the the presence of God and the temple of God, and as you walked into here this morning amidst the people of God, the family of God, the point is that God is so much bigger than you. Look what God is doing. He is of a magnitude that dwarfs you. But if you forget this, listen, if you forget this, you begin to get caught looking around you, and below you instead of above you. You get into the habit of simply going through the motions instead of contemplating your motivations. You forget that God sees everything, especially your heart, and the call here is simply to be careful, to watch out. You see, approaching God can be dangerous. If you're approaching him thinking he could care less about what's really going on in your heart, you need to think again. And if you think this doesn't apply in the New Testament, we already showed you Ananias and Sapphira, but how about 1 Corinthians 11 and approaching the Lord's table? Some of you are sick and even dying. You're approaching the Lord in an unworthy manner. The call here is to draw near, to listen, and it reminds us that God has not left us to figure out who he is on our own. Listen, did you catch this? Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near, to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools. That idea of listening to God reminds us that we don't have to figure it out ourselves, that we don't have to invent a way to approach God that would be pleasing to Him. It reminds us that He has already told us we just need to have ears to hear. Secondly, notice this, we must fear God. The very last verse, but God is the one you must fear. Fear of God means awe and adoration. It's honor and respect. It's love and devotion. It's surrender and submission. It's so much so that he becomes the dominating control in your life. Are you mindful of the distinction between you and God? Are you careful about contemplating who God is, how the grandeur of all that he's revealed himself to be? This is why the, the regular study of God's word is incredibly important for our hearts. It's not just to learn a bunch of things to do. It's to learn the God who calls us to do them. It's to have our eyes open to all that he is and all of his majesty. Are you mindful of the distinction between you and God? The Old Testament system was a constant reminder about this gap. The very system designed by God, the sacrificial system, was intended to instill a holy fear of God. It was this perpetual reminder reminder that as you approach God's glory through the temple system, as you got closer and closer to the center, you're getting closer and closer to the very presence of God. The holy of holies, a perfect cube, demonstrating the perfection of the God who dwells there. The system of sacrifice designed to remind you that you are not worthy, you are not holy, you are sinful and fallen and do not deserve to be in the presence of God, that God hates sin, that God will punish the evildoer, that God is just and must punish the wicked. The whole system designed to be this perpetual reminder that God is up here, you are down here. How in the world can you then dwell in relationship with this God? 
Sacrifice after sacrifice, animal after animal killed, reminding us of the penalty we deserve. The Holy of Holies with a veil that was set up between the blood of the sacrifice for sin was brought, and by the way, it's set up between there and the Ark of the Covenant, the place where the blood was to be sprinkled on the mercy seat. This veil was this constant reminder of the disparity between us and God, how we couldn't get into God's presence. But between that massive curtain stood this reminder then of this separation. It was a reminder that God longed to set us right. Finally, you want to approach God. You want to do it the right way. You need to acknowledge that Jesus came to bridge the gap as our mediator. Ephesians 2.13 says that we who are far off were brought near by the blood of Jesus Christ. Now, where there was separation between us and God, where we could not offer him acceptable worship, not truly, he offered perfect worship and a perfect sacrifice with his own life so that you and I might actually be brought near to him. It's significant that when Jesus was crucified and when he rose, the veil was torn from top to bottom. That a way for sinful humanity had come so that we might enjoy his presence The way had come, the veil had been torn, and now this is how we approach God. Hebrews 10, 19, listen to these words as we prepare our hearts for the Lord's table this morning. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. You see, a way for us to approach God has been made to enter into his presence God himself had to establish that, not just through his word, but through his living word, his son, Jesus Christ. And as we see how great God is and how sinful we are, we realize how desperate we are for a solution, for somebody to bridge that gap. And that's exactly what Jesus did. He came to this earth. He died in our place. He bridged the gap between us and God. We draw near to God through His Son, Jesus Christ, and as a result, He draws near to us.